Good evening, dear yogis. How's the sound? Is it too high? No, it's not. Okay, it sounds high to me, but... Um, I'd like to start with a story uh, from Tenzin Palmo, a Western Tibetan Buddhist nun. She says, many years ago, His Holiness the Dalai Lama came to the remote Lahul Valley in India where I was living. He was there for about one week giving Dharma talks and empowerments. After one of his talks, which had lasted for several hours, I turned to one of the Lahuli women and asked, do you know what he was talking about? She said, I didn't catch much, but I understood that if we have a good heart, that's excellent. So what we're doing here is we're practicing to uncover our good heart, right? And um, as we have seen, it can be a complicated process to do so. I'm going to talk a little bit about that at the beginning of the talk. I was assigned to talk about concentration, which I'll get to, but we're going to start by kind of meandering our way there. So there's this ecosystem management uh, style or uh, natural resources, natural resources management style called rewilding. And rewilding is um, letting nature heal by repairing damaged ecosystems and allowing them to return to their natural state before we interfered with them. So wild areas that have been altered, developed, and tamed are allowed to return to their kind of more native state. Dams are deconstructed, walls are taken down, native species of plants are encouraged to grow, and even native animals are reintroduced. The natural area is encouraged to return to the beauty, biodiversity, and majesty of its original state. So I think of the practice of the Brahma Viharas as we rewilding our hearts. So uh, we've already talked about beaver dams, right? We're, um, <laughs> we're taking down the dams that we have constructed in our hearts, the walls that we've constructed in our hearts the soil perhaps that we've, been, uh, we've depleted, we re-nourish it, and we let the beauty and majesty of our natural hearts um, return, come back. We connect with our heart in its natural state before it became obstructed. A big part of the obstructions are um, uh, the hindrances that were talked about last night. The hindrances, I actually call them protections. The hindrances are the way that we protect our hearts from the wildness of this world. And they dam up the heart. <laughs> um, they, they, cre- they create walls. <laughs> you know, like grasping is is our attempt to protect ourselves from the truth of impermanence. Aversion is our attempt to protect ourselves from unpleasantness, 
Aversion's so interesting. It really, the secret story of aversion is if I hate something enough, it'll go away. Like, that's the secret belief. We actually, we actually believe that, right? <laughs> Grasping that secret belief is if I hold on tight enough, this thing won't end. Yeah. Sleepiness kind of dulls the heart. Restlessness keeps us um, on the surface, and doubt pulls us back. Um, but what's it like to think of them as um, protections? Maybe we can have some tenderness when we look at them that way. They're just trying to take care of us in their own way. <laughs> They're trying to protect us from the rawness and the wildness of life. So I would say that in the interviews or the meetings that I had today, um, there's this deep existential question that is arising or becoming more apparent um, to many of us. It's actually a question that we're all asking whether we know it or not. And that deep existential question is, is it okay to soften? Or how do I soften and be vulnerable in this um, challenging world that we live in? And I mean challenging on a couple levels. First of all, there's just an existential level that things keep changing and, and we can't control them. And it's wild in that way, right? You never know what people will do. You can't make them do what you want. Um, and then there's uh, kind of the, just the challenges of, of living in a world right now that is um, in crisis on so many levels. How do we keep our heart open in such a situation? That's what we're asking. That's what we're trying to um, figure out. <laughs> So collectively, we're hitting um, a place of vulnerability in our practice. Now, not all of you will relate to this part of my talk, and that's okay. (laughs) You know, part of listening to Dharma talks is to know what applies to you and what doesn't, and not to feel like every talk, if you don't, you know, if you're not having exactly the experiences that the teachers are talking about, then you have to make that happen because there's something wrong with your practice. Not true. But I would say that collectively, we've been softening our defenses a bit. That's, that's the power of metta, and it's the power of meditation, and it's the power of the kind of unification and collectedness that's happening for us. And the power of the safety of this place, and the, and the release from the outward responsibility, all of that. So our hearts are starting to soften a little bit. And then the heart is saying, what are you doing? <laughs> are you out of your mind? <laughs> is this a good idea? You know, and it shows up in, in the hindrances or trepidation or um, uh, memories from middle school. We, I had several of those today. <laughs> you know, remember, like, your, your heart is like, remember middle school? Like, are you sure you want to open your heart? 
<laughs> and then we think, well, we, 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 our kind of cognitive minds are like, heart open, come on, you can do it. <laughs> and the heart's like, wait a moment, you know, this doesn't seem like such a great idea for me. And we kind of go back and forth, right? So how do you get your heart to open? I think um, the only way that I really know is to have respect. To respect your heart. Not to boss it around. Back to what I said the first day, right? Our hearts are a little bit like um, feral cats. (laughs) You know, kind of complicated and protective. Um, Many years ago, my uh, we've given dogs a little um, airtime, so today it's for the cat uh, lovers. So many years ago, my partner and I um, uh, adopted a feral cat from uh, the Insight Meditation Society. There were a few feral cats kind of hanging out in the woods, and so we adopted one that was six months old or more or less, and we, we had hopes that maybe um, she would tame up. Um, but we wound up naming her La Ferosa, which um, in Spanish means the ferocious one. <laughs> and um, La Ferosa, Lala, I called her sometimes. She never quite, she never really tamed up. And she was very ferocious about kind of protecting herself. You couldn't move in on her. If you moved in on her, that was just not going to work. You know, she set all the rules. And then one time we went um, out of town, and uh, she moved into the neighbor's woodshed and lived the rest of her life there. (laughs) I came so that I really appreciated um, La Ferosa's fierce commitment to her own safety. So how about if when our hearts are like La Ferosa, if we if we just appreciate our heart's fierce commitment to safety. That's respect. Then, so after La Ferosa, uh, we adopted two more feral kitty cats from IMS. From, um, but this one, the, the feral mom had, um, had the kittens in the garage. So they, these were three, four weeks old. We had high hopes, which, you know, mostly it turned out pretty well. They were young enough. But Pearl, so Pearl was the girl, and um, she, she was always kind of trepidatious about her wanting to connect. She, she would do like walk by. She'd walk by you like maybe she was going to connect, and then she'd like uh, steer away, right? So she kind of wanted that connection. She wanted the love, and yet it made her so nervous, right? And so... Again, so much respect was needed. You couldn't move in on her either. But what I loved and respected about Pearl was that all of her life she was learning, even as she was like 14, 15 years old, she was connecting more and more. So sometimes our hearts are like Pearl. They, they want connection, and they're like, well, I'm not sure. And, um, and, but they keep learning, right? Our hearts keep learning. And then Sparky was the boy. Sparky, no qualms about connection. Loves 
to be right there, open, connecting. You can turn him upside down. You can do anything to him. And he's just, and um, sometimes, occasionally, our hearts are like Sparky. <laughs> they're, they're, they're just willing to be there and be open and show up and connect. And hmm. So we have these wild hearts manifesting in you know so many varying degrees of protection and openness and and moving between the two and can we be okay with that movement and the more that we can listen to our hearts and respect them even while you know gently suggesting openness with the ourselves and easy beings right um the more we develop trust with our own heart and and then the more it opens so we have this protective um heart that that that's not sure it wants to be vulnerable in this world and then we have the other side of us which has had these moments of openness here right you've all had moments where you feel like um you just connect, right? And that pure connection has a sense of kindness and love. It might be a Greco, is that what they're called, Greco? Or um, did I say it wrong? <laughs> Those little lizard things. <laughs> or um, it might be, you know, the sun it touches the hills in the late afternoon. Or it might be the sense of we're sitting all here together. Or maybe we're sitting here in the hall and somebody starts to cry and our hearts are touched. Maybe we feel the love and the food that we receive and we really taste it because we're here. So we're kind of between a rock and a hard place, right? Like, (laughs) we want all that. We want, we want, to connect and to truly connect we have to open the heart and what we get right is this deep sense of belonging on this planet which i think is one of our deepest cravings is to belong i'm talking about really deep belonging there's so many levels of belonging right but but we know that we belong here and now and this is our home That comes from the open heart. So then we start to, you know, we, we, we work with our heart. We're like, well, maybe it, maybe it is okay to open up a bit. Maybe I'm not in middle school anymore. <laughs> maybe, maybe I can still take care of myself if I soften. Maybe the vulnerability I feel when I open is worth the sense of belonging, of coming home, of connection, of unification. So that's our dilemma, and most of us on some level are trying to work that out. 
It might be conscious, it might not be so conscious. And so a lot of um, kind of the depth that's happening in our practice, the depth being this uncovering of the dilemma and the, um, the, the moments of connection and metta and the moments of protection and hesitation um, comes from the power of concentration. Or, like we talked about before, let's kind of put, park that uh, word in the parking lot, the lower parking lot, and um, use like unification or collectedness. And so the, the, this, this coming back, you know, each time we're off somewhere else, coming back, coming back, coming back, um, brings the power to the metta. It brings the depth to the metta. It, it um, enriches it, broadens it, deepens it. and strengthens our understanding of what metta is and what it isn't. Somebody said that concentration is like um, a child whining. They stick to their subject. They don't get distracted. (laughs) They persevere. They don't assume any time limit. (laughs) They ignore other things happening around them, and they are willing to dedicate a lot of energy to the task. (laughs) So that's some of the ingredients of, of, of this collectedness, right? Coming back to the same subject, persevering, dedicating our energy, not worrying about how long it takes, and um, putting aside the distractions that arise. If you're having a hard time with this collectedness, uh, you're not alone. It does, um, they've done tests with goldfish that have, (laughs) that have proved that um, concentration is in decline among humans. (laughs) The goldfish seem to be doing okay, but. (laughs) So apparently, Goldfish can concentrate on average for nine seconds and humans for eight. Um, I'm not completely sure how they know um, how if a goldfish is concentrated, but I'm going to trust they have their, their methods. Um, so um, don't judge yourself if possible. <laughs> There's this um, story I read just this morning in the most recent Buddha Dhamma magazine from Sister Dong Nguyen. She um, is with the uh, Thich Nhat Hanh community. And she says mindfulness, but I'm going to put metta because that's what we're practicing as our focus, what we're focusing on. Metta, I see it this way. When you, have, when you practice, you have a bead here and there, a moment that you're aware. During the next five minutes, maybe you just do things on autopilot. 
Minutes later, you're again aware of something that you're thinking or doing. So these beads of mindfulness um, are dispersed and scattered. But if we cultivate more and more metta beads more consistently, then they're strung together into a necklace of concentration. (laughs) And I think that's kind of a nice way to give us hope, right? We're not trying to like hold on to some extended period um, where the metta is just right there, though that does happen, but just beads, beads of metta, and then they, they string together and then you have a beautiful necklace of, of metta. So there's two kinds of concentration, and um, many of you know the insight practice, and that's a, a kind of concentration that's called momentary concentration because it, 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 it goes from object to object to object. And, and the purpose of that kind of concentration is to see the rising and passing away of all phenomena. So the purpose is insight. Then the other kind of concentration is a single focus, where you just take one thing. I, I, I drove the concentration car up here, didn't I? I was going to park it, and I keep using that word. <laughs> I hope you guys are doing all right with that. Um, there's a single focus concentration where you're just choosing one object. And sometimes, um, often, it's the breath, right, at the tip of the nose. Some of you have done that kind of um, practice, anapanasati. But in our case, it's metta. And I am a complete fan of metta as a concentration object. The way I look at it is if you spend a long, and it not, it's not a bad thing, Anapanasati is great, but if you spend a long time and, and, you know, bringing your attention to the nose and you don't feel like you get very concentrated, it's like, what are you left with? But here, if you spend a lot of time with metta and you don't feel you get that concentrated, you're still left with metta, so you're still doing really good. <laughs> it's so wholesome. It's such a lovely, wholesome uh, object to to focus on. So in this kind of meditation, we're not doing this investigation of reality. We're not concentrating on um, impermanence. We're not like um, uh, investigating everything that arises. This kind of single focus uh, concentration is really about um, simplicity, which we've talked about a lot, kind of radical simplicity. As best we can, we just keep coming back to metta. Sometimes it's impossible, and then we might spend some time, like um, um, Christina talked about last night, like being more with perhaps an emotion arises, that if we can't put it aside, if we can't find something easy, some metta that we can connect to, then sometimes we do those kinds of investigations. But the, the technical instructions are, See what you can put aside and go to what's easy. If you're being with somebody and it gets complicated, put it aside. You don't need to work it out. Put it aside. Go to somebody who's easy. Juice up. Remember what metta is. Get, you know, and then maybe you go back to that person that's, you know, not as easy. But that's why we keep saying go towards what's easy because, like, that's, that's our refuge. 
that's where we really um, develop the depth of, of the metta. And there are a lot of insights that arise from this practice. Um, a lot of insights into uh, grasping and letting go. Some of you might have noticed, so you're, you're going along and, and then the, the metta starts to feel like it's kind of actually flowing, right? You're not having to work so hard. And then we kind of go, oh yeah, oh my God, this is so great. <laughs> it's great actually because the hindrances are at bay for a while. That's why it's so great. It feels so great, right? And then we're like, oh, how can I get more? How can I make it stay? And then we, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and then, and then what happens? <laughs> it goes away. So such a great teacher, like of how learning how to do a kind of um, single focus concentration practice is a great teacher of like grasping, letting go. Really learning that it, that concentration doesn't deepen because we want it to. But we'll try it. We'll try it a lot. <laughs> it doesn't deepen because we think we can hold on to metta. It deepens because we keep coming back. We keep those beads, right? We just keep coming back. Real simple. Easier said than done, but, but that, that's the idea. Like, real simple. You know, you can't control if your mind wanders. Did you, you know that, right? <laughs> if we think we can control that, our meditation gets so hard. I remember the first time I really got that, about 39 years ago. And I still remember it because I was so, is this like, all right, I feel like it keeps moving, sorry. I was so impacted. I went into my interview or my meeting with, um, it was, I think, my first long three-month course, and I was, I don't know, maybe a few weeks in. And I went in, and I was like, oh, I'm such a bad yogi. My mind wanders all the time. I can't follow the breath, you know, I'm on. And um, my teacher is actually Sharon Salzberg, and she just looks at me, and she says, you know you can't control if you go off into thought. I'm like, I can't? <laughs> I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing, you know, like, and she's like, no, the moment you have choice is the moment you wake up, you know? So the moment we wake up from wherever we've gone, not always, but usually there's some choice. We can actually make the choice to come back to metta. That's what we can do. Mm-hmm. I, and that's why I said, right? I said, oh, I can do that. That's, and, you know, I was so relieved. <laughs> and then we also um, get um, deep insights into our beliefs and our conditioning around love, around relationships, around connection, around kindness. And they kind of, they, it, they don't arise from thinking, right? We're not trying to use our conceptual minds to understand our heart. We're trying to listen to our heart, and we let it tell us how it sees the world. So I remember, like, when I first did metta as a, as a practice like you all are doing, 
and I had my easy person, I'm doing metta for them, and then all of a sudden I had this understanding that I had never in my life wished anybody well wholeheartedly, that I had always had some reservation. And I realized that the deep belief in that was that if I gave away love, there wouldn't be enough for me. Now, when you think about that, we know that isn't how love works, right? But that was my conditioning. That was what I had learned as a child on, you know, to protect myself or whatever, you know, need to the whole story. Um, but to see that was so freeing because if I didn't see it, I was going to keep doing it just as I'd always done it. But when I saw it, I was like, then my heart had a chance to ask the question, well, what would happen if you wholeheartedly wish somebody well? You want to try it? <laughs> and then discovering that, no, that, that, that actually when you wish somebody well wholeheartedly, there's more love, not less, right? So we, we can get these kinds of understandings, and I'm sure some of you have had them, that they arise of like how we see the world, how our heart sees the world. And there's uh, freedom in these seeing things. And so the categories, using these like very specific categories, are meant to help flush out. It's part of the purification process we talk about to flush out these, um, this conditioning, right? And that's one reason why we try to you know, steer... Uh, you towards categories. Some people have a little bit more intuitive, uh, energetic kind of metta, which can be beautiful and have its own uh, strengths. But sometimes, um, if we're if we're kind of just resting in a more diffuse metta, we don't get the difficult stuff. <laughs> we don't, you know, this other stuff doesn't kind of flush up. So, so if, if it's too easy, you might want to stretch a little bit. If you already feel like you're stretching, you know, great, don't stretch more. I'm not trying to, you know, some people might be doing a diffuse um, kind of metta, and that's actually a stretch. So that's good. So this kind of uncovering our deeper conditioning for most of us, some of us maybe um, had, you know, got healthy conditioning as a child, but for many of us, um, it's not so pretty. <laughs> the other thing is we see just how petty the heart is, right? I love that story Christina told last night about walking in the hall, right? Because we all do that. <laughs> and what, what's really useful is if we can laugh at it. You know, not take it so seriously. So we have to have some capacity for this non-identification, for this lightness when these things come up, like that I never wished anybody wholeheartedly well my whole life. If I'm too um, identified with that, I'm going to feel crushed. Oh, you're a horrible person, right? That's what, that's what I'll think. But, but that wasn't, you know, how I held it. It was like, wow, look at that. That's amazing. That was my reaction. Oh, hmm.
So the other thing about concentration or collectedness, it comes out of um, relaxation and happiness. The proximate cause of concentration is relaxation. I mean, it's um, happiness. You didn't think that, did you? (laughs) You thought it might be like, willpower. (laughs) No. Mm -mm. Happiness. And that's why metta is such a great um, object of of concentration is because uh, it makes us happy. (laughs) So does this in, in concentration. And the other thing that's really helpful for concentration is renunciation or simplicity, which we keep coming back to. Kind of giving up our, um, our reliance on the conceptual world or the conceptual mind as our way to make sense out of the world. You know, you're going along, you're doing your practice, and then you want to figure it out, Right? It's like we want to understand it with our minds because that's where we're used to taking refuge, especially in dominant Western culture. And what we're aiming for is a whole different kind of understanding that's embodied, intuitive, and in the realm of feeling. And that provides a whole different kind of knowing that Um, that opens us to the deeper mysteries of life. The deepest understanding of metta is beyond a concept. It doesn't come from thinking about it, right? It comes from embodiment, the heart. And we understand it through deeper and deeper relaxation into the feeling and intuitive heart. Can you feel the surrender there? So so that renunciation and simplicity is surrendering our reliance on our conceptual mind to make sense out of the world and to um, orient towards an intuitive, embodied, and feeling knowing of the world. And we're learning to trust then something different and something deeper than um, logic. We're developing faith in something bigger than our thinking mind, our, our, our figuring it out mind. We're surrendering really to life. We're learning how to surrender to life. It's a wider space, a wider compassionate space that we're landing in. Takes a lot of courage. We feel safe in our cognitive minds. It takes a lot of courage to let that go. Basically, we're trying to undo millennia of um, internalized patriarchal conditioning. (laughs) that prioritizes the mind, prioritizes logic and intellectual understanding. No wonder it's kind of tenacious. So I don't have a ton of time left, but I want to talk a little bit about the components of um, concentration. 
So there's traditionally, we talk about five components of concentration. Aiming, sustaining, joy, happiness, and one-pointedness. So these are the components that come together as our concentration increases. So I want to talk mostly about aiming and sustaining. (laughs) So with aiming, that's the active part of of our practice where we're aiming towards metta, right? We're, We're actively moving the mind in a certain direction to our meditation object, to the phrases, to the image, so it's, it's the active part, right? Sustaining is more, um, I think of it as a more receiving part. So it's where we rest and see what happens through that connection to the phrases, uh, the um, image. And, and we sometimes, we as... Um, Dominant culture, Westerners, <laughs> dominant, those conditioned, which is most of us by Western dominant culture, um, to, to aim and aim and aim. We're very active in our practice. And sometimes we're too much, there's too much aiming. And, and we forget to rest and receive and feel what, what's happening, the sustaining part. So this is, uh, some of what I'm talking about is about um, wise effort. And sometimes the way I describe it is that um, we practice sometimes like woodpeckers. <laughs> we just like pounding it out, right? Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and um, either wood, woodpeckers or sometimes we practice a little bit like um, blue jays, kind of bossy. Blue jays come in trying to control, you know, take over, um, dominate the situation. All you know. Sometimes there's just too much of that kind of active, active energy. And sometimes I think we should practice a little bit more like a hermit thrush. Do you guys know hermit thrushes? I looked on the map. You do have them here. <laughs> I think they winter here, though. They they summer breed where I am. And there are these birds that sing in the woods. You don't see them very much. Thrushes are kind of brown, nondescript. And their song is like a, a flute. It's very ethereal and light and um, poignant almost, nostalgic almost. It's, um, it touches your heart. When we hear a, a hermit thrush, we feel blessed and quieted. And so maybe that kind of hermit thrush can point us towards a more easeful or a gentler concentration. We actually need both. We need the woodpeckers and we need the uh, hermit thrushes. Not sure about the, the blue jays. <laughs> but in our practice, you know, we do need that aiming, aiming, aiming. But then I think of the hermit thrushes, the... Uh, Um, receiving the sustaining part. They work together, really. And then um, joy, 
that's another one of the uh, components of concentration. Again, which is surprising to us, right? But, but some of you have experienced that. It came up in the questions this morning. It's this joy of nothing in particular. <laughs> it's this joy of, of being here, of being present. And then with the metta, it's the joy of metta. And it, and it deepens the metta. It makes it, it uh, juicy and, um, and plump. <laughs> and um, sometimes, however, as we talked this morning, it can get to be a little bit too much. And, a little, um, and then what we have is um, sukha, or happiness, which is a quieter kind of joy or happiness. It, it, it's calmer and, and broader and more settled, more content. And, and what we find is more satisfying. At first, we think the joy, we've hit the jackpot. And, like, you know, and it is. It's beautiful to feel joy. And yet when we taste the kind of more calm happiness, uh, there's more rest. Our heart goes, oh, I can rest. Okay. And then the last component is the um, one-pointedness, the kagata. And that's where the mind kind of just stays. It's like a well-trained puppy, <laughs> just stays. Or, or a contented cat purring in our lap, it's just settled. And it's even quieter and it's even stiller. And part of this process of concentration and these different components is that we develop a taste for stiller and quieter forms of happiness more restful forms. So we actually rework our idea of what happiness is. Well, we're getting, we are running out of time. Let's see if there's any last words I want to make sure you have. Hmm. I think I'll end with a story. This is a story of an old Chinese monk named Dung Mei who lived in a um, neighborhood in West Virginia. It's a true story. And he had this big, huge oak tree in his yard. And uh, he was this, this old, old monk, right? He had this big oak tree in the yard that needed to come down. And um, he would chop at it with a hatchet every day. And his neighbors would come by and say, look, I can just bring over a chainsaw and, you know, take care of this thing for you. And he's like, no, no, I do it my way. Just every day, chop, chop, chop. And it got to be in this neighborhood. If they didn't hear him chopping, they'd worry about him and go, you know, go over. And then one day there was this thundering crash heard all over the neighborhood as the tree fell. And the neighbors then asked him, well, what are you going to do next? And he said, make firewood. (laughs) (laughs) And he said that this is how he taught his students. You just chop away a little bit every day, and one day a great big tree falls. (laughs) So just chop away, 
resist the temptation to think that there's a faster or better way. Let it be organic, like uh, Dunme. So let's sit for a moment, and then hopefully we're going to have a guest chanter. Well, turns out well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.